And our gospel lesson comes from the gospel according to St. Matthew. It's found in the sixth chapter, beginning at the first verse, where Jesus said, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward." But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. On this holy night, I say to you, grace to you all in peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight, I'd like to tell you a story about a man of God. But this man of God sinned. He sinned in a very big way. He committed sins that you simply wouldn't expect a good man to commit. And it wasn't one of those cases where he accidentally committed a sin before he realized what was going on. Not at all. He put a great deal of thought and effort into committing his sin, and then he went to even greater trouble to cover up his sin. In fact, The events in his life read more like a court hearing than a Bible story. When the smoke finally cleared, two people were dead, and two families were destroyed. But we find that the most amazing fact about this man's story is that all of this didn't ruin the man. He was able to recover from his mistakes. He was able to get back onto his feet. You may have already guessed that the man I'm talking about is known to us as King David. He's the same David who, as a young person, was able to slay the giant Goliath. And he later wrote the most recognizable passage in all of the Bible, I think, the passage that reads, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But here's another part of David's story. One evening... The king was out outside because he had a hard time getting to sleep. 
So he went out onto the balcony of his palace and he took a walk. Across the way, he saw a beautiful woman who was named Bathsheba. She was taking a bath. When David found out that Bathsheba's husband, whose name was Uriah, was a soldier, and this soldier was away at war, David sent for the woman, and he seduced her. Sometime later, she, she told him that she was going to have a baby. David, in an attempt to cover his tracks, had Uriah brought in from the battlefield for a time of, well, the scriptures say, rest and relaxation. David suggested that Uriah go home and spend time with his wife. Uriah politely refused because going home to his wife during a time of war would have been seen as an act of disloyalty to his fellow soldiers. Since Uriah couldn't be persuaded to compromise, David sent the soldier back to the battlefield. But he had to carry a letter. And Uriah's letter in his hand was addressed to the commanding officer. What Uriah didn't know is that letter contained his own death warrant. The letter told the commanding officer to put Uriah up in the front line and to withdraw the other troops so that Uriah would be sure to die. And that is exactly what happened. Uriah was killed in battle, and David was then free to marry Bathsheba. No one in Israel knew the story behind the story, but the Bible says that the Lord was very displeased with what David had done. It wasn't long before God sent a prophet who was named Nathan, and Nathan confronted David with his sin. David knew that he had done wrong, and I'm sure that deep down he knew he couldn't have gotten away with it anyway. But to make matters worse, David and Bathsheba's newborn child was very sick. And Nathan the prophet said that the sickness was all David's fault. He said to David, because of what you have done, your baby is going to die. Imagine how David felt about that. The man couldn't hide it any longer. He had blown it. He had blown it in a big way. And now it was time to face the music. And David did face the music. He made things right with God. And by God's grace, he got his life back on track. At some point during this time in his life, David wrote the 51st Psalm. That we saw that represented in the video at the beginning of worship this day, and, and part of our responsive reading is based on those very same words. Psalm 51 is all about what to do when you've really blown it in life. We can learn from David's example how to make things right when we do make mistakes in our own life, or when we commit a, a sin of any sort. We need to realize that sin is sin. In God's eyes, sin seems only to come in sizes or degrees in society's eyes. When sin takes place in our lives, we often make the mistake of thinking that God hates us. God hates us because of what we've done. The truth is, the Lord loves you no matter what. When we sin, even when we sin in a headlines-making way, God wants to forgive us. He wants to help us 
to restore ourselves and get back on track with him and with others. Getting back on track requires a change of heart, first and foremost, a change of heart. In the first two verses of Psalm 51, David begs forgiveness and he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are justified when you speak and upright in your judgment. David, you see, was guilty and he knew it. He couldn't deny his wrongdoing any longer. He could only confess to God and ask God for forgiveness. Getting right with God, again, requires a change of heart. You may remember another man. He was a television preacher earlier in our lives, and his name was Jim Baker. He published a book at the end of his career entitled, I Was Wrong. Imagine that being the title of your autobiography. How would you like to be able to sum up the first 50 years of your life with that phrase, I was wrong? Not many people have the honesty to do it. In his book, Baker admits not only to moral failure, but also acknowledges that he led many people astray by teaching theological error. He describes himself during that time of his life as ambitious and self-serving, and he considered himself above any consequences. When he wound up in prison, alone, broke, and abandoned, he experienced a change of heart. He reached a point where he was truly sorry for his sins. Maybe you had experiences like I did. When I was young and I would get into trouble, and I did that, my mother would ask me if I was sorry. Of course, my answer was always yes. And then she would ask the really tough question. She would ask me, are you sorry that you did it, or are you sorry that you got caught? A change of heart means that we are sorry that we did it, regardless of who knows or doesn't know about our sin. Secondly, getting back on track, back on track excuse me, requires a change of mind. Have you ever noticed that we gladly take credit for our accomplishments, but we often blame our failures on extenuating circumstances? For example, how many times have you heard somebody say, I'm sorry I lost my temper, but it's because I'm so tired, or I'm under pressure, or I lost my temper because you were getting on my nerves. Our natural tendency is to blame someone or, or something else whenever we fail. When people say, I'm not myself today, they most often mean that they're at their worst, certainly not at their best. It's not always easy to accept responsibility for our failures, but we must if we want to get our lives back on track. We have to change our mind about who is in control of our life. We have to stop blaming others and accept responsibility for our own actions. Here's a, a true historical example. In 1980, there was a mayor of New York City. His name 
was Ed Koch. And as mayor, he appeared on a local news program in the middle of what was then New York's financial crisis. Koch had spent over a quarter of a million dollars to put up bike lanes in Manhattan. And those bike lanes turned out to be a disaster. Cars were driving in the bike lanes, pedestrians were walking in them, and bikers were getting crowded out and into the traffic again. It was a mess. It was a mess, and many people in New York were irate about it. Koch was coming up for re-election, so a handful of journalists cornered him on a TV show. They planned to tear him to pieces for spending money foolishly. Spending money foolishly when the city was nearly broke. One reporter asked, Mayor, in light of the financial difficulties New York City is facing, how could you possibly justify wasting $300,000 on bike lanes? The stage was set for a half-hour confrontation. In reply, Koch said, It was a terrible idea. I thought it would work, but it did not. It was one of the worst mistakes I ever made. Then he stopped talking. None of the journalists knew what to say or do. They were expecting him to squirm and make excuses. But Mayor Koch didn't even try. The next journalist stammered and said, but, 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 but Mayor Koch, how, how, could, how could you do this? Koch said, I already told you. It was a stupid idea. It didn't work. And then he stopped talking again. There were still 26 minutes to go in that news show, and the reporters had to find something else to talk about. The last thing they expected that day was for the mayor to truly take responsibility for his actions. The principle here is that we have to change our mind about who is in control of our lives. We cannot blame our sin on anyone else. We are responsible for our lives. It does no good to say, I'm a victim of my environment or a victim of my circumstances or my genealogy or some form of bad luck. David could have said, it was Bathsheba's fault. Look what she was wearing at the time. Or he could have blamed God. Or he could have blamed his other wives, and yes, he had hundreds of them. He could have blamed his other wives for not being sensitive to his needs. He could have placed blame in several different areas. But he realized that it was now time to take responsibility for his own actions. And he had to take control of his own life back again. That's why he said in Psalm 51, And so you are justified when you speak, and upright in your judgment, Lord. Indeed, I have been wicked from my birth. David was saying, I am responsible for my actions. I can't blame anyone but myself. Getting back on track requires a change of heart change of mind, and also a change of direction. David's life got off track because he started doing things his way, and he started going his own direction. Suddenly he recognized that things had skidded out of control and that he needed to make things right. He also realized that he couldn't repair his life without the help of God. Listen to his words. He says, cleanse me, wash me, blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. 
We can mess up things on our own without anyone's help. But it takes an act of God to get us back on track. We must depend on him to cleanse us and wash us and forgive us. Finally, as I mentioned, getting back on track requires a change of direction. A change of direction where we stop going our way and start going his way. And what does it mean to go God's way? It means that we spend time alone with God on a consistent basis. David said, cast me not away from your presence. And he said that because he recognized that spending time with God is what gives our lives direction. Sisters and brothers, be filled with the Holy Spirit. David said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He said that because he recognized that we need the Holy Spirit's power in our lives to overcome the power of sin. Brothers and sisters, ask God to give you a sense of joy. David said, restore to me the joy of your salvation because he recognized that a relationship with God is supposed to make you happy. It is not supposed to make you miserable. We can't get back on track if we think that serving God is torture. Ask for the power to be consistent. David said, sustain me with your bountiful spirit because he recognized that we can't be changed if we're not willing to be changed. Over and over again, we must be willing to change. Look for the chance to help others. David said, I shall teach your ways to the wicked and sinners shall return to you because he recognized that the good news is certainly worth sharing with our brothers and sisters out in the world. A change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction. Do you know what that all adds up to? That churchy word called repentance. When we blow it, when we mess our lives up, we need to repent. Some people think that repentance is to feel guilty. But I've got bad news for those people. Feeling guilty isn't enough. There's more to repentance than just feeling bad. Of course, when we sin, we do feel guilty. That's natural. But if you feel guilty too long, you haven't really repented. Repentance removes guilt. When David asked for God's forgiveness, he also asked God to restore the joy of salvation. Repentance results in joy. If you've blown it, you need to get past feeling guilty and get back on track with God. Long ago, starting this night, folks would begin to fast, to refrain from a lot of meals that we would normally have during Lent. And that would remind us of such things as repentance. That evolved into our culture where we give something up, right? We give something up during the Lenten season, like maybe chocolate, something really, really valuable. You are welcome, of course, to fast or use any sacrificial discipline that you, that you choose to help focus your prayer life on growing closer to God and God's ways and, and further from the ways that we've messed up. But if you don't mind my opinion, <clears throat> more important than these ways of giving things up is that you should ask God to help change your heart and to change your mind and to change your direction. 
Focus on those things. Ash Wednesday is a good day to begin to do just that. Amen.